You're listening to Allied Health Podcast, talking all things Allied Health, with your hosts Danielle Whedon, physiotherapist, and Claire Jones, occupational therapist. This episode of Allied Health Podcast is brought to you by MediRecruit, and we're exploring locoming in the UK as an allied health professional. Yes, it's uh, Claire Jones here and Danielle Whedon, directors of MediRecruit. Now, a working holiday in the UK is somewhat of an allied health tradition. It's something both Danielle and I did as younger therapists, and honestly, I can say it was the highlight of my OT career. There's currently really high demand for Aussie, Kiwi and South African trained allied health professionals to fill locum jobs right across the UK. And here at MediRecruit, we not only assist you to find great locum roles in the UK, but we also assist you with all the necessary preparations. And today we're joined by Nick Sneed, an Aussie OT who has recently travelled to the UK and is currently working his first locum role at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, London. Is that right, Nick? Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. That's correct. Yeah, I've been at St Mary's now about um, seven, seven or eight weeks. Yeah. Great. So firstly, um, we just wanted to say that we really appreciate your time. It's only 5.30 or 5.45 a.m. in <laughs> London. So thanks for getting up early and um, getting your vocals ready for us. <laughs> ah, no no worries. I noticed you didn't get my bank details beforehand, so I'll make sure I send them through and <laughs> invoice you for the time. Exactly. So as a starting point, um, <laughs> do you want to start... Um, our listeners will be listening to this because they're considering a working holiday in the UK. So do you want to start sure, with yep. giving us an overview of your OT career to date and why you decided to head over to the UK and do the working holiday um, working holiday thing? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I studied OT at Deakin University in Geelong and uh, graduated with honours at the end of 2018. Um, I wrote my thesis on a seated dance program for aged care residents, which steered me to my first job uh, in aged care in Hobart in early 2019. Um, I then moved across to the Royal Hobart Hospital and worked um, as an acute OT for a couple of years. And, and then I moved to Darwin, um, where I worked at Palmerston Regional Hospital in uh, inpatient and outpatient rehab um, until, yeah, until I moved to London only a short while ago. Um, as far as motivation to, to work in the UK um, goes, I, I think throughout my uni placements and early stages of my career, I was really on the hunt to find OT role models um, to learn from and help me develop my own sense of you know, my OT identity and the sort of OT I wanted to become. So I'd often ask these mentors a lot about their experiences and career highlights. And I think a common thread with all of them, uh, those that I really looked up to, um, was the the London experience and the time that they had overseas. So that was definitely um, a big draw uh, initially. But um, I, yeah, I, any travel plans that any of us had during COVID were obviously put on the back burner. So it's only once restrictions started to ease that... Um, Two of my OT uh, friends that I worked with in Hobart previously um, called me very late one Saturday night and let's all move to London, woo! And I, uh, <laughs> sort of, um, we all we all had a laugh and um, yeah, it was all just a you know funny sort of funny sort of phone call. And you know, I sort of got thinking about it and actually messaged them the next day and sort of said like, well, you know, if you're both serious and you know, let's make this happen. And from there, we we actually discussed it and thought, yeah, let's let's do it and. That's when we started looking up what we needed to do, and that's how we came across you, Claire, and um, yeah, got got the ball rolling. So I guess my main motivation at that point was um, to use my job as a way to make money whilst traveling Europe, and more so focusing on my personal and life experience rather um, with any sort of work related um, perks being more of the bonus than than the main draw. 
Mm-hmm. And we touched on it earlier, Nick, before we started recording, but um, the professional development that happens is a bonus. Um, but you really undergo a lot of personal development as well, doing something like, you know, picking yourself up and moving to the other side of the world and working in a different, completely different system, don't you? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm only learning that now, but even just moving within Australia, I think I learn a lot about myself every time I move and um, it does help help you grow as um, as a person, um, as a friend. As, you know, it, it helps you in so many ways um, to, to step outside. It can be... Yeah, uncomfortable to start with. It always is when you're stepping out of your comfort zone. But um, yeah, it's um, a huge source of growth as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm not going to get too bogged down in this, but I do want to mention that there's quite a few things that you need to tick off before you can work as an allied health professional in the UK. Um, The main things are gaining professional registration with HCPC um, and entitlement to work in the UK. So I thought it'd be beneficial just for our listeners to um, run through the details of both really briefly, so stay with us. Um, so in order to work um, in the UK as an OT physio, speechy dietitian, radiographer, biomedical scientist and podiatrist, you need to be registered with the Health and Care Professions Council, which is known as HCPC. Um, processing time for HCPC applications is approximately three to six months or even longer. So you need to allow plenty of time for this uh, and we strongly advise you to gain HCPC registration prior to making firm plans to work in the UK. Now, um, there's two fees associated with HCPC registration. There's an application fee called the scrutiny fee, uh, which equates to around about 920 Aussie dollars, which is non-refundable. And then once your application is approved, there's a biannual registration fee of around 335 Aussie dollars. So you need to budget for around $1,300 to cover your registration costs. Um, when it comes to the actual application, it's, it's a written application. Uh, you need to obtain a course information form from your university, and this can take some time to obtain. So you need to make a start on this sooner rather than later. And you also need to obtain two written references from clinicians that have supervised you. So also allow plenty of time to obtain these. Now, Nick, um, I often get asked this question. It's written references that you need to obtain, isn't it? Or, or- uh, yeah, I, I got um, two written references as part of my HCPC. So you need to attach them um, as you know letters um, attached to um, yeah the main main registration forms. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, can you tell us yeah. um, briefly about your experience of gaining HCPC registration? Um, as in, like, how long? Or not you gaining? Yeah. Or not yeah. gaining it? And were there any hiccups? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hiccups! Yeah, that's uh, definitely hiccups. Um, I was just going to say as well about um the uh, course information forms. That's something that's worth noting as well. With that, is that some universities will charge you for that. Um, I've heard yeah, a cool. mixed mixed bag of things. That um, it it can be between sort of. You know, I've heard people being charged between like ninety to two hundred fifty dollars. Luckily, my university deacon didn't charge me at all for it. Um, but mm. yeah, it, it is something that you have to factor in for time. But um, yeah, ACPC hiccups. Um, I think that's um, that's the the operation that they run as hiccups. I think they're um, <laughs> yeah, they're, it's um, yeah, definitely some challenges involved. Um, so I started looking into it, like I said, probably early September when I started speaking to you, Claire, and. Um, yeah, a lot of time chewing your ear off um, on the phone and via emails. And um, yeah, I, despite sort of having all the tools and knowing what I needed to do, it really did take take time to sort of get all my ducks in a row and be sure that this is what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, and I you know to actually sit down and do those things like get your 
course information, update your resume, get your references, um, and complete your application. Um, that all takes time. Uh, I think for some people as well, the references can be really tricky because um, I guess at that point, um, people start to get this sense that you're on the move. So if your job, if you're in a pretty secure position, um, it can be a bit um, uncomfortable when everyone mm. wants to keep that sort of hush-hush. But um, I guess, yeah, you just have to pick who you're, who you're going to get your references from um, if that's a, if that's an issue for you. But I think um, for me, everyone open about wanting to make the move and um, yeah, no one was really begrudging me of that. So I think that made things pretty easy for me, but that's something that's worth thinking about. But um, yeah, I think how long did it take? Time, for, I, sorry, Nick, how long did it take for your application to be approved? Oh, well, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, from the point I started looking to the point that I got approved was almost a full year. So um, uh, almost a year to the day, September 3rd was when I got it approved that um, so I had to post my um, HCPC off with all my attachments um, to London, um, which obviously takes longer. The um, process has changed to online now, which I'm hearing is taking less time. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I received from submitting it in January of this year, I heard um, in March that I needed to pay that scrutiny fee, which is, yeah, just giving HCPC a huge wad of cash just to have a look at your application. Um and then um, I didn't hear anything from them until June. That's when I started following them up and making my own phone calls to them. And every time I was sort of reassured that my application was only days away or I'd hear from them very soon and, you know, days sort of kept ticking over. And fast forward to the end of June, um, I was in Italy. And I got an email asking for more information on my report when I was sort of expecting that that's when I'd hear that I would be approved. So um, the report basically said that I couldn't get my registration as I hadn't stated sufficient experience in the mental health sector. Um, and I basically had to provide information and um, write a letter to them detailing all my experiences in um, mental health and subjects at uni I did that were relevant, working groups I'd been part of, basically anything I could do to prove that I was competent in that, in that sector. So um, because I was in Italy, I couldn't respond until I got back to London. And then when I did respond, it um, took another six weeks to finally get approved. So it was just delays on delays on delays. And I think each time... Um, I called it. It happened to a friend of mine as well. Each time we'd call, we'd hear conflicting information about how long it was going to take, and mm. um, we ended up. Um, I ended up um, putting in a very, <laughs> a very spicy complaint. Um, uh, it's, it's certainly confrontational for me. I'm usually not, um, um, yeah, not very confrontational in that space. But um, yeah, I, I sort of lit a fire underneath them a little bit and heard within four days that um, my registration had been approved. So <laughs> sometimes the um, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So I, I think, um, yeah, yeah, that's certainly something. And I, like I said, I think what it is is that a lot of um, international applicants are, are moving to London um, or the UK in general to, to work and because um, of Brexit and applicants that have to go through, even just from Europe, that have to go through these processes and after COVID um, and reduced staffing and people working from home, there are just so many applications and probably not that many people looking at them. So there's just massive, massive delays. Um, so it, it does take longer. Yeah. I remember when you told me three to six months, um, I thought that was a dream, but um, yeah, it, uh, I'd say definitely expect longer. And if, yeah. you, if you anticipate for longer, then you won't be disappointed. So yeah, um, I think I think also, Nick, um, in HCPC's defence, if I can defend them, um, you would have hit, they had, a, they had a massive influx of applications following um, international borders opening up as well. So I think you probably hit yeah. the worst time um, <laughs> in terms of processing times and hopefully this new online system now um, 
acts to really reduce the time it takes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it will. So yeah. Great. Talk a little- go, Claire. No, you're right. You go down. Okay. In addition to HCPC registration, um, you've also got to gain entitlement to work in the UK. So many allied health professionals work in the UK um, and hold a youth mobility visa. So um, we thought it'd be beneficial to provide some additional information about this type of visa. The the youth mobility visa allows you to live and work in the UK for up to two years. Um, Australian, New Zealand and Canadian citizens aged between 18 and 30 years are eligible. You must prove that you have £2,530, which is approximately 4300 Aussie dollars of savings to apply. Uh, the earliest you can apply is six months before you leave and the processing time is generally between three and six weeks, but it can take longer, like HCPC. So the cost <laughs> is um, £259, uh, which is approximately 450 Aussie dollars, and there's also a healthcare surcharge of approximately 1600 Aussie dollars as well um so Nick when you went over or you are over what do you hold a youth mobility visa and was the application straightforward yeah um yeah in comparison to HCPC the mobility visa was actually a lot easier so uh, yeah that's that's the one I had I had the, the, the oh, I've got the youth mobility visa which is two years um I'd say that process took me about three months once you fill out the um, forms and pay the money and things like that um but um, one uh, one part of that visa uh, that you're required to do is um, complete what's called a biometrics, um, where you need to go to a UK visa office in person, uh, submit your paperwork, um, and have a photo and a fingerprint scan. And, um, I guess that's that's all well and good for people who live in Melbourne and Sydney, where there's a UK visa office running business hours Monday to Friday. But mm. unfortunately, I was living in Darwin, and they don't have a UK visa centre. And uh, after looking at looking it up, there's lots of capital cities and major cities in Australia that um, either you know don't have offices or they have offices that run reduced business hours or only a couple of days a month. So um, you really need to look into that before you start your visa process because um, basically I had to fly to Melbourne to get my picture taken mm. and then fly home. So it was um, it was a little bit of a pain, but um, luckily for me, I have friends and family there, so it was a great opportunity to catch up with them before I left. Um, because uh, I hadn't planned to to really go back um, before then, so um, it ended up being being fine. Um, but I can imagine um, that that would be a pretty major setback for some people who are running on a really tight ship, and or even financially um, running, you know, really close to the wind there. So um, the other thing that <clears throat> because I was because I flew into Melbourne um, uh, and to get your visa processed, they have to hold your passport for up to three weeks. So again, if you're um, if you're getting um, or if you're on a pretty strict time frame uh, and they've got your passport, uh, I had to get that mailed back to me, which, yeah, again, it probably only took three weeks to get it back in the mail. But, um, yeah, if there had been any right. delays there and I was waiting to leave, um, that could have been really, really tricky. So, mm. yeah, that's um, good advice. But just one thing with, yeah, just one thing with the visa as well is that um, I think I got told to um, get that before my HCPC. And I, I think if I had my time again, I probably would have liked to have been further along the HCPC process before my visa because mm. I guess the HCPC you can just keep paying and renewing and indefinitely essentially like it's like your ARPA registration you can just pay it and pay it and pay it and it just keeps rolling on whereas the the visa you've only got this one opportunity um and it's two two years to run so um obviously there are opportunities to get sponsored and stay on if you um yeah if you if you, if you want to but I feel uh, my first month I was traveling in in Italy but my visa was already active at that point so I probably wasted my first month 
um, you know, if I if I just timed it a little bit better, I probably could have yeah. had my visa start when I was absolutely ready to work with my registration rather than, um, yeah, rather than start it just as soon as I left Australia. Yeah. So if, I'd, I'd definitely recommend people look into that a bit more because um, it's something I wish I'd done. Yeah, 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 because it activates... Uh, is it, it does it activate Nick? Um, tw- is it twelve weeks after you've received it? It activates whether you whether you're in the UK or not, doesn't it? So, so it starts when, ticking. Um, yeah, you basically get to pick your pick your date from when it starts. So I chose the date of June fifteenth because um, I knew that's when I was going to be arriving in London the first time when I when I got there from Australia. Um, but but then you've got thirty days to activate it. So I think if I could have picked a different date and then you've got 30 days to activate yeah. it. But I think once you get your uh, actual approval before you choose a date, uh, I think you've got three months, to, where, yeah. Um, three months, yeah, to, to, to pick a date basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, like I said, I was just in a bit of a panic and I didn't know which which one to do. So I just did it as soon as I was going to arrive and I didn't really think much about it. But now mm-hmm. it sort of, yeah, just took me down a month. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, as we mentioned, um, in order to work in the UK as an allied health professional, there are there are a number of things you need to prepare in addition to obtaining HPC, HCPC registration and a visa. Um, we're not going to go into all specifics here, but please get in touch if you're planning a working holiday, and we'll assist you all the way. Um, yeah. So what? So Nick, can we talk about your working holiday to date? Um, how long did it take you to complete all the necessary preparations to work in the UK? How much time did you allow? You've probably touched on that already. About twelve months out. Yeah, yeah, I'd say like um, between sort of six and twelve months. Luckily for me, I wasn't on too strict a time frame. I had a general idea when I wanted to be here, and uh, that was um, capitalising on the European summer. So, um, you know, trying to trying to get into into Europe, you know, for sort of June, July was the was the plan. Um, uh, just so I could yeah go on um, a nice you know big holiday in Italy, which was really lucky. So. Um, yeah, the whole the whole thing's been a been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, like I said, it's it, it is always uncomfortable moving to a new place, and uh, everything sort of just go 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 up until you leave. That um, yeah, I sort of felt a bit scattered and unsettled there for a fair while. So um, and yeah, there are definitely parts of of this experience so far that haven't been overly gl- glamorous. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's been amazing to to be here, and um, I'm just really glad that I followed through with it because it's it can be one of those things that people talk about doing and then you know, get to their 40s and wish they'd done or, you know, they didn't actually do it and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm really glad that I've actually, you know, just pulled the trigger and, and made the move. Yeah. And um, did you set up a bank account in the UK or before you headed there? Was it easy? Can you give us a bit of info on that? Oh, yeah, great question. I think um, what, what I did is I got what's called a, a WISE card um, and I'd strongly recommend looking into that. Um, I'm not sponsored by WISE. I'm not uh, making a plug. It's just, it was just a really... Um, Really helpful app. So basically, you can do that when you're in Australia. So if you order uh, a Wise card, um, they've got a really good app that helps you convert currency. Um, you know, so you can send your Australian money to to Wise and get it converted into yeah, Great British pounds or um, euros and things like that. Um, so I sort of used that initially to help get me over here. And then um, when I got to when I got to London, um, a lot of banks require you to have uh, a fixed uh, address. Uh, and I guess a lot of people in my position. And a lot of your listeners will be traveling over without a fixed address. And if you don't have a friend whose address you can sort of use temporarily, then, um, yeah, it becomes really tricky to try and open a bank account. So there is a bank that I uh, am with, again, not 
sponsored, but um, with uh, Lloyd's Lloyd's Bank, which didn't require me to have a fixed address, they um they just relied on my passport and my biometrics card um to to open a bank account, and I updated the address later. So that was really lucky that they allowed me to do that. So basically, I have my Australian bank and my UK bank, and the wise sort of works as a as an in between, which uh, helps me flip currency between my Australian and British accounts, and um, also I can use that Wiser card when I'm traveling around Europe and um, yeah, load up different currencies on that. So I'd, I'd definitely recommend that because, um, yeah, I get my wage paid to my uh, British bank um, and then people, um, you know, money can still come into my Australian bank if people are transferring me and things like that um, for different things. So, um, yeah, I think it's helpful to, to have all three. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's probably going to work different for every everyone. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, and what about um? How did you find accommodation in London? Oh yeah, very, very, very tricky. It's um. So I, like I said before, I moved over here with um two other OTs from Australia, and um, the three of us were originally looking to try and all get a place together. Um, and we quickly gave that up and started looking separately when we saw how competitive it all was to find a house with three spare rooms. It um yeah, it was very, very tricky. There's a there's an app that everyone uses over here called Spare Room. Um, so you download that and I think we were, uh, me and the two girls were sending off about 30 messages a day and maybe hearing back from, from two people if we were lucky and, um, to arrange inspections and even some of the inspections that we had, you know, um, 20 minutes, um, you know, we're on the tube 20 minutes away from our inspection starting. Um, and we get a, get a text basically saying that the route's been taken. So, uh, it's really cutthroat. It's really competitive, um. I just thought big city, lots of lots of houses, which is true, but big city also means lots of people, so lots more competition. And um, yeah, there's about up to 400 people turning up to to inspections and things like that over the course of a couple of days. So it's it's absolutely insane. Um, so I feel really lucky to have a place now, um, but you are um, paying a lot more than what you'd probably pay for Australia. But yeah, it is London, so you, you'd probably expect that a bit as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'd say um, some of the houses that I looked at as well, really, um, really sort of average sort of, it's like Harry Potter under the stairs sort of um, operations where you, you don't really have a kitchen or you don't have shared living spaces. So I, I'm lucky that I've got both of those things. But um, I know a lot of the places I looked at were pretty, pretty dark and dingy. And I, I sort of looked at every house and thinking of what it's going to look like in the cold and, and rain and whether um, it's going to be good for my mental health going forward. So I think, um, I think I'm in a good place now. But yeah. Um, yeah, the girls I was with, they've only just found a place now and we've been here like eight weeks or so. So it's taken them that long. They were in a temporary um, sublet accommodation until then. And um, yeah, it's taken that long for them to find a secure um, 12-month lease. So it is really, really tough. Yeah. Nick, we often um, mention to therapists that if they're prepared to go out of London, um, they can get locum roles with hospital accommodation, uh, not free of cost, but at a very reasonable rate. Uh, it does make that option look very attractive, especially when you first get over there, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I'd say it depends what your priorities are, whether you whether you need to be in London or if, if you're open to moving around. Because, um, yeah, that's, that's what I've heard so far as well from my recruiter, that if I'm willing to move, that there's accommodation available uh, you know, in the more regional areas, which um, I guess you'd expect um, it would be um, a lot trickier for them to offer accommodation in London for every single health person that was, you know, wanting to get a yeah. job in the city. So, um, but yeah, like you said, there is often still a cost to them, unfortunately. Um, 
it's usually only doctors that get um you know accommodation paid for i think the yeah, ot's um might struggle to justify getting <laughs> free housing um yeah. further down the pecking order um, <laughs> yeah that's right we're only de- dealing out shower stools and over toilet frames we're not going to be saving any lives though the same <laughs> way a doctor can um so it's um yeah no, it's probably fair enough but something to certainly think about for people yeah. who, if they're open to moving more regionally i've also heard you can get paid at a higher rate um more regionally because there is that high demand whereas london um, you know, everyone wants to work in London, live in London. So that's why things can be, you know, you can get paid a little bit less or, you know, rent being a little bit higher just because there is such high demand. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nick, I was just going to ask, um, what, 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 at what level are you working at at the moment? So I'm working at what's called uh, a band six, um, and that's basically the equivalent of like a level two or a grade two in Australia. Um so that's what about so, um, two, two, two to four years of experience? Yeah, I, I'd say so. Probably, probably more like your three to four. Uh, I think the, okay. the one to two would be what's called a band five. Um, and in my um, in my role as a as a health assistant, when I was waiting for my HCPC, that was what's called a band four. Um, so yeah, the the NHS pays pretty fixed across the board. Um, I'm sure my recruiter get a bit of a cut out of out of that, but mm. um, yeah, from um, from the the band four, I think it was about 13, 13 pounds an hour, um, and then moving up to a band six, it's closer. Uh, it's about twenty three pound an hour, so it's a, it's a fair difference uh, in pay. That's so that you were getting paid that thirteen pounds as a as an allied health assistant. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yep, yeah. and um, yeah, twenty three now as a as a band six OT. Band six, yeah. Now, did you secure that? Um, now your story is a bit different because you worked as an allied health assistant first and then went into an OT role. But did you secure that allied health assistant role before or after you arrived in London? Um, so I, yeah, like I said, it is a bit of a bit of a funny story. But I, um, I had a job lined up uh, at a different hospital altogether uh, as an OT, but because of my delays in re- my registration, they couldn't accept me um, to start work there until I had proof of my HCPC so um, what ended up happening is that um, yeah I then got my recruiter to put out um, a call to you know any hospital sort of in the city that um, would take me as an assistant initially and then transition me into an OT as soon as my registration came through so um, yeah I, I, I sort of had something lined up just prior to entering London um, yeah. just corresponding to my recruiter on the emails but yeah that was all really set up when I was in Australia, my recruiter was um, talking to me quite regularly about, you know, the areas I wanted to work in and what sort of um, experiences I, I was interested in. So they sort of build a profile for you and um, you complete, you know, like updated resumes and all their onboarding tasks. So um, you don't really have to interview. You've just got, um, you know, a list of jobs to, to pick from and then you reach out to those um, or your recruiter reaches out to those agencies and um, tries to match you match you with a job so that that part's pretty well taken care of yeah and that's what we aim to do here is to make that transition from our um, recruiters that are working here in Australia to recruiters that are working in the young uh, in the UK a very smooth um, smooth transition uh, so that you're always in contact and you always know what's happening at any given time um, now you're working yeah, at excellent. Mary's Hospital in Paddington in London um, tell us was it difficult to like was it difficult to secure that role or did you have lots of locums to choose from like how in how in, how much demand are you in over there nick as an ot uh, i'm 
Oh, a pretty hot commodity at the moment, um, <laughs> like a piece of meat. Just seeing who will pay the most money for me. Um, um, <laughs> I um, uh, as a, as an AHA, like oh, sorry, as a as a health assistant, um, it was a lot trickier to, um, you know, like I said, because I didn't have that registration. Yeah, I didn't have as much um, much of a peak um, in where I ended up. It was more just getting whatever job uh, I could because London's a very expensive place to live without a job um so i really just needed anything uh initially but now that i'm an ot um and and when i was initially looking expecting that i was going to get my registration um yeah i'm only really looking in specific areas i was getting sort of you know between you know, 18 and 20 um job offers um in each email that i talked to my recruiter with so mm. it really the demand is massive it's so so high um um, so there's so much work. I think, yeah, there's a mix of mix of reasons for that after COVID and things like that. But just generally, OTs, I think, are really hitting their straps in terms of demand uh, all over. So, um, yeah, there's there's just so much work. And uh, I think if I was willing to, you know, work out of London or work outside of hospitals and do other things, there'd just be even more jobs open up as well. So yeah. I'm I'm looking in pretty niche areas and even still getting, you know, like that that quantity of job offers. So yeah. I think that that's um, yeah, the, the work's there for sure. Yeah, fantastic. And how have you found working in a department as a locum? Been, um, like, have you have you been welcomed into the department with open arms? Do you attend things like staff meetings? I mean, you're 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 there at a premium yeah. cost per hour. Um, yeah. Do you get to things? Do you get to attend things like professional development and and staff meetings? Yeah, I, I I do. Uh, I'm I've been involved in that. I'd say being a locum is sort of a bit like being a junior again. You're sort of um, just filling gaps that need to be filled, and um, you're sort of working on the wards that no one else wants to work on. So <laughs> it can be not very not very glamorous, I'd say. Um, but um, yeah, and you have to really be open to regular changes. Like just this week, I think, or tomorrow, I think I'm supposed to be moving wards again. Um, and yeah, you just sort of. Um, filling gaps wherever wherever you get told and I think yeah I don't, I don't mind too much um you know to get moved around sort of expect that with locum work but um I'd say um just in terms of that um you know the, the welcome and things like that I, I guess I was met with a bit of indifference and I, I'm not too sure um whether that's just British people or it's you know just being a bit hard to crack but I think it it was it's, it's, it's possibly as well the fact that they know you're a locum and they know you're not going to really mm. stay so I, I guess the investment in you to train you up and get you really confident is probably not there like you would be if you were a permanent staff member um so yeah I've, I've attended we have professional development every wednesday afternoon um but i'd say there's there's just some general other stuff like your yeah, onboarding um yeah orientation some things that have just been a little bit haphazard they're like oh you know you just figure it out and i, and I guess i have but it's um yeah it's not the same sort of warm fuzzy welcome that i've had at other places where um you know everyone's been really interested um i guess the the, the novelty is um uh, i think people uh, i don't notice it myself but i think um yeah my um accent is quite funny to people so um i've been I've, you know my workmates have been calling me australia because i obviously stand out so it's weird being um you know a bit of a novelty to them to just um, be you know running around talking in a funny accent and um, saying funny sayings that i don't really realize that i do but um yeah that's that's sort of been a bit of a quirky thing but yeah no it's it's been it's been good on the whole but your, your yeah. point as well is that you really are just expected to really be thrown in the deep end a bit aren't you because you're there as a locum to fill gaps and to pick yeah. up 
pick stuff up quickly and run with it. Yeah, you are. And I, I guess um, one of the, the things with that flexibility as well is um, your uh, holiday pay uh, is actually included in your hourly rate. Um, so when things like public holidays come along or um, you want to take leave, you don't actually get paid for that time. Um, so that that's a, uh, I think that's the same with sick leave actually as well, that you don't get paid for it because it's sort of inbuilt in your in your hourly rate. Um, but it, it also gives you the flexibility to at the drop of a hat um, to say that you don't, you don't, you know, you're not working and things like that, which uh, again, I, I'd probably want to be a bit more respectful and give my employer some notice when I knew I was going to take leave and things. But essentially, if I told them, you know, today that I'm going to have all the next week off and then I can, I can basically do that. It just means that I don't get paid. So um, yeah, it's a sort of an interesting, interesting thing that in some, some ways it can be good and in other ways not so good, but Mm. Um, yeah, it, you really do have a lot of flexibility in what you can do. Yeah. Nick, can I just ask you, do you think it's a benefit to have at least 12 months experience before you go over? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, like I said, because of that lack of uh, orientation and things like that, that, you know, you, you, you do, you are really expected to hit the ground running. Um, uh, yeah, it depends uh, on how confident you feel in what you're doing, mm. but I, um, I would, I would really say, um, I don't think I would have managed this, you know, in my first two years of working as an OT. I think, yeah, um, yeah I've really been expected to just figure it out. And um, I think when you have a really good knowledge of the OT process and what your role is, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in a different health system. You know the, the general pathway of what you're supposed to do and where things are supposed to go. Um, they might be called a different name or they might have different rules um, or policies of how to how to go down certain pathways, but you know, what exists and what, what your what your job is. So I think if you weren't really firm around those things, um, this would be really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we spoke about accommodation, but the other point to make as well, if you, depending on the clinical specialty that you look at, and I know I did it many years ago, but I worked in community rehab for some time and I actually had a car as part of my job, which is pretty exciting. Oh, wow. It just meant yeah. that I um, could, you know, I was living in southwest London, but it um but I could head over to Wales on the, my weekends with my mates and things like that. So if that was part mm. of my sort of the benefit more socially as well and highlights of working working over there um, in the role that I took. But what uh, what what so far have been has been a big highlight for you? Um, the big highlights I'd say would be of just making the move um, and like I said, committing to actually coming over here. And um, you know the novelty of being in one of the busiest cities in the world. At, um, at a pretty historic time too with the queen passing and the king coming in very shortly you know that um it, it's a it's a pretty interesting time to be here in general but the you know I, i'm just constantly blown away with, with um how much london has to offer the, the funny accents and um I, I just feel really proud of myself that i've that i've you know made it here and um, unbelievably grateful to have an opportunity like this because um, I know it's, I'm extremely fortunate to, to, to be able to do this. And, um, yeah, I just sort of pinch myself every now and then and I'll see a double-decker bus and think, oh, this is, this is my <laughs> life now. I'm, I'm actually here. This, um, yeah. I'd say that, that that continues to be a highlight. And, um, yeah, being so close to Europe and um, having, you know, access to, like you said, just going to um, somewhere, you know, going to Wales this weekend actually, you know, just like, things are just at your – at your fingertips and you can just um yeah have some really cool experiences and already well, i know i'm pretty, still pretty new to it all but there's yeah there's just so much here that i just can't wait to sink my teeth into and yeah it's very it's all very exciting it's so great it's such a melting pot of amazingness london isn't it you've just got 
yeah. all around the world. And then you're still working in your career and you're earning good money per hour to be able to travel. It's great. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. And what about challenge? What's your biggest challenge been so far? Um, <laughs> obviously, uh, other than other than dealing, oh, I'd say, like I said, when I was um, an allied health assistant um, working on a sort of geriatric surgical ward, um, every patient I went to stand up, transfer or mobilise, um, uh, yeah, had, had to poo. I'd say that was, <laughs> I wouldn't say that off there, but was, I've never dealt with as much poo as I have uh, in my seven weeks of working. Um, it's It's been absolutely obscene. I'd say, um, yeah, that was a big reason for why I wanted to get into OT, so I didn't have to deal with that. But, um, yeah, here I am. So I've, it's certainly built a lot of resilience, but I'd say that, that's been um, something I've... That's, that's I've, been um, a big challenge. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's certainly a massive challenge, but I'd say just the, the general learning, like learning to sit with discomfort and uncertainty, especially when things go wrong. Like there's, there's been a lot um, lot of things, um, you know, in, from the point that I started this process that have, you know, life just happens. It, you know, like I said, it, it took me around 12 months to get all this happening. And there are a lot of things that happen in that time that I didn't you know, plan for or expect. So it doesn't matter how well you plan. Um, you know, things can go wrong. I had like, you know, there's delays in the HCPC. Um, I had my my car in Australia break down two days before I was supposed to sell it. Um, there's just been uh, a number of things that, um, you know, have been hiccups. And luckily for me, I had the, you know, the time and, and the money to allow for some flexibility in that and for some things to go wrong. But um, yeah, there, there, it was pretty scary. And it, there was a lot of, um, you know, hiccups along the way. And um, but like I said, I think when things are scary and unknown and, um, they challenge you in those ways outside of your comfort zone. I think that's when you learn the most about yourself and you do the most growing. So I think although those have been some really challenging times, um, moved to new places where I didn't know anyone. And um, yeah, it can, be, it can always be really challenging, but I feel like it, you know, I know it makes me a better OT overall and, um, you know, hopefully helps make, make me a more well-rounded person overall, more generally. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But like I said, in, in that in that massive amount of time, there's a lot that can happen in your life. I know. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'd say you really need to be clear about the reasons that you want to want to come and go through a process like this, because there's a lot that can happen in your life that um, might make you want to stay um, in Australia and things pop up um, all over. So um, if you have a really clear idea why you're here, um, you know, what you want to get out of the experience, I think it makes it, um, yeah, a bit, bit easier to go through that discomfort. Yeah, I agree. Afraid and brave. Be afraid and brave at the same time is always, <laughs> always a good motto. Yeah, exactly. Um, sure. So you're going, you're going to Wales this weekend, you've just mentioned, but more broadly, what's the next few months? What, 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 are, you, what are you up to? What have you got planned for the next few months? Um, yeah, I've, I've seriously got weekends booked back to back to back with um, travels and things like that, which is so good. Um, I think the, the, the big highlights that I've got on the horizon, of, um, I'm going to Oktoberfest in Munich at the end of this month. Um, and yeah, and going to uh, book in St. Paddy's Day in Dublin for next year um, oh. in March. So um, yeah, those things will be massive. I'm really, really excited for that. Um, but yeah, just more generally, I'm going to Germany a couple of times. Um, and you like I said, going to Wales and just trying to make the most of being here because that, like I said, that for me was the main draw of being here, um, being so close to Europe and having access to those things. So, um, yeah, I've tried to do really something pretty much every weekend, um, even if it's just uh, in, in England um, or, you know, somewhere close by. So, mm. um, locum-wise, um, I think, um, yeah, I've I've been 
Um, now that I'm a hot commodity once again as a as an OT, I'm sort of starting to shop myself around like a bit of a piece of meat again, um, to seeing what what jobs are available. So I might um, look into changing jobs soon into an area that I'm sort of more passionate about. Um, but yeah, for, for right now, I'm trying not to look too far ahead and just be you know be present and enjoy what I'm doing because um, I'm you know here doing something pretty incredible in a pretty amazing city. So I just yeah, I don't want to plan too too far ahead and uh, just sort of enjoy what I'm doing Mm. well my advice Nick as an OT that's been there and done that is absolutely live it up Australia (laughs) 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 go for it while you can because life moves on pretty quickly so absolutely make the most of it you certainly uh, you certainly sound like you are oh thanks that's um (laughs) yeah I hope so I'll, I'll take that on for sure (laughs) thanks nick thanks so much for joining us it is just great to hear firsthand um your experience of locuming as an allied health professional in the uk um and to our listeners out there who are planning uh, a working holiday to the uk or even if you're just thinking about it please get in touch Uh, we're here to help every step of the way you can email us at uk at medirecruit.com or get in contact via our website medirecruit.com thanks nick Thanks very much, Danielle Claire. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Allied Health Podcast. In the show's notes, you'll find links to our free recruitment resources, job opportunities and healthcare marketplace insights. To listen to new episodes, please subscribe via Apple, Google or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give it a five-star rating and review and be sure to tell your therapy colleagues and friends to tune in. Tune in.